Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, my name is Andres. In today's episode, Survival and Resistance, we focus on the ways women are organizing against gendered violence and mass criminalization, and for a world free of domination. We speak with Mariam Kaba, longtime abolitionist organizer and writer, about her work with groups like Survived and Punished and Project Nia, and the criminalization of women under capitalist heteropatriarchy. We also talked to Adrian Skye Roberts from the California Coalition for Women Prisoners, CCWP, on specific issues faced by women behind bars. We close today's show with the voices of two women from CCWP's multimedia project, A Living Chance, Storytelling to End Life Without Parole, and a poem written and read by Carmen, a writer and artist currently incarcerated at the Women's Huron Valley Prison in Ypsilanti, Michigan. But first... Here's Cave Syed with some news you may have missed. The Free Brescia campaign has called for a nationwide week of action on April 10th. Brescia was incarcerated last year at the age of 14 for defending herself and her family against the everyday violence perpetrated by her father. Brescia is currently incarcerated in the Trumbull County, Ohio Juvenile Detention Center and facing an aggravated murder charge. On March 23rd, after a three and a half year long immigration battle, Rasmia O'Day, the 69-year-old icon of the Palestinian Liberation Movement ended her fight to win justice. Due to slim prospects of a fair trial, O'Day accepted a plea deal that will require her to not serve any more time but strips her of her U.S. citizenship and her right to remain in the U.S. On International Women's Day, millions of women from across the globe joined in a global strike and hundreds shut down Main Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Marchers chanted, from Palestine to Mexico, border walls have got to go, and invoked the name of Ara Rosser, a black woman murdered by Ann Arbor police in November 2014. Here's a segment from one of the speeches. fight back against the attacks on reproductive rights from this current administration, but we must also recognize that full reproductive justice for all is impossible under any president from either major party within the context of our current system. We cannot achieve full reproductive justice without dismantling the capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, heteropatriarchy. And I... See news from the streets at rustbellradio.org for links to these news items, including the Free Brescia curriculum. I'm A. Maria, here with Kaif Syed, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement-building project based in Detroit, Michigan. How do we understand definitions of violent crime when marginalized women are sent to prison or put under state supervision in response to acts of survival and self-defense? These are the kinds of questions we ask as abolitionists. Co-producer Alejo Stark and I recently interviewed Mariam Kaba to discuss the role of the criminal punishment system in the lives of women. My name is Mariam Kaba. I've been working around issues of incarceration and criminalization for many years. My work has been a lot of focus around young people in the juvenile justice system. Most recently, I'm one of the co-organizers and co-founders of a project called Survive and Punish that focuses on work around supporting and fighting alongside criminalized survivors of violence. I've been involved with many different kinds of projects. Most of them have some connection to anti-criminalization work or supporting youth leadership development, doing stuff around anti-violence work. So that's a little bit about me and what I've been involved in over the years. How do we understand mass incarceration when we start with and center women in our analysis? For me, it's the frame that's most useful is to think about mass criminalization over 
centering mass incarceration. And that is important because most people who are criminalized don't actually end up behind bars or locked up. But there are many ways that people are drawn into the larger project of the criminal punishment system. It has to do with being arrested. It has to do with maybe a short-term detention. That has to do with a lot of steps that don't necessarily lead to any sort of significant incarceration or any at all. That may lead to probation and surveillance of other kinds throughout the course of their lives. That's important because women, for the most part, are a smaller number in general of folks who are involved in the criminal punishment system and certainly people who are incarcerated. So if you think about this as mass criminalization, then you see women in a different way and you can actually see the role that the criminal punishment system has on their lives. It brings up issues of parenting in a different way because we live in a society that is very much still the person or the people who are responsible for the kind of day-to-day child rearing are often women. And in our society in particular, people who are targeted in incarceration are often poor and people of color. That's even more acute as to who is the one child rearing prior to finding themselves in the system. Over 60% of the people who are incarcerated in women's prisons are moms. And so you have a situation there where the removal of the mother who's often been the person who's the primary caregiver of the children is so, so traumatic on the family, plunges the family even more into more serious poverty because her, not just the child rearing, but also single mother providing person economically is ripped from the family. So that has all kinds of impacts on the community outside, so on the other side of the world. You talk about mass criminalization, which extends the prison walls into our neighborhoods through surveillance and social control. How does this impact marginalized women, particularly those who are criminalized for their survival mechanisms? Can you talk a little bit about Maurice Alexander and the corollaries between the movement for black lives and the No self to defend project? The criminalization of survival and self-defense also has long roots. It's not something that's new, particularly when we look at the experiences of people identified as women who are of color and poor. The trajectory often of women who end up in the system criminalized. You have to understand the violence and trauma that they experienced prior to incarceration. The numbers are that between 70 and 90 percent of women who end up incarcerated have histories of domestic violence and sexual violence in their lives. And so that says a lot about the role that that plays in making people much more susceptible to finding themselves caught up in the criminal punishment system. To the example of Marissa Alexander, a mother of three, who in 2010, nine days after she had her third child, was attacked within her home by her then estranged husband who had a history of abusing her and also every other woman he'd ever been with. He'd admitted that himself. She fired a warning shot to ward him off, a shot that did not harm anybody that got lodged in the wall of her house. And she ended up convicted after only a 12-minute deliberation by the jury. She was found guilty of aggravated assault and illegal firing of a weapon, three counts of that. She'd been charged under the 1020 law in Florida, which talks about the fact that if you illegally discharge your weapon, you're subject to a mandatory minimum sentence of 20 years. So when she was found guilty, the prosecutors decided to act for the 20-year mandatory minimum, and that's what she got as her sentence. I started the Chicago Alliance Supreme Court of Alexander to work alongside and in support of the National Mobilization Committee to raise money, awareness, and to support 
her son, her family, while she was going through her childhood tribulation. She ended up having her case in 2013 overturned on a technicality. She got a new trial, and before she actually was set to go to trial, she took a plea deal, which ended up being the time she'd served, plus an extra 65 days in jail, and then a probation of two years where she would have to have electronic monitoring and house arrest during those two years. Just this half year, in 2017, at the end of January, Marissa finished her two-year electronic monitoring, house arrest, probationary sentence. But she's now officially, quote-unquote, free, even though she still has a felony record, which is very problematic for many different kinds of reasons. You know, we have to think about the collateral consequences of criminalization and how that basically keeps you in the second past system, even when you're supposedly, quote, free and you've done your time. So that's one example of the ways that self-defense is often criminalized, particularly the self-defense of black women and women of color. I was wondering if you could speak on carceral feminism. Victoria Law defined that as an approach that sees increased policing, prosecution, and imprisonment as the primary solution to violence against women. What are the problems with a pro-criminalization approach to addressing violence? And how are marginalized women organizing to radically undermine this good victim versus non-victim criminal dichotomy? First and foremost, most people who are targeted by the system because they're poor, gender non-conforming, people of color, they don't already have access often to those systems. Those systems were not set up in the first place to, quote, protect them. Those systems actually have worked to harm them already. So there's an increased suspicion of turning to those systems for, quote, help when it's needed. What carceral feminism doesn't consider is the fact that those systems are not set up to help everybody, quote, unquote, equally and in the same way, and that those systems are often adversarial and very much harmful to particular communities. So those communities don't get the same benefits as middle-class white women. And so that's a way to think about the way that carceral feminisms don't really take into account everybody when the focus is on using the apparatus, the killing machine of the state, to actually solve problems. It's kind of a weird, self-fulfilling prophecy of the system not being there for you, you doing what you need to do to survive, you then becoming criminalized by that very same system that you didn't turn to in the first place because you couldn't, because you're caught in this horrible cycle of inability to actually be free and to have an opportunity to be free of violence and free from violence. The other issue is that when you're in a position where you're already marginalized, it isn't just that that system is going to harm you in some kind of way. It's that it's very difficult to see yourself sometimes as worthy even of quote-unquote protection. You're very much limited in terms of the tools that you have at your disposal. So you're much more likely to take matters into your own hands. And that itself, because you're not considered as somebody who has a soft worth defending, puts you right in the middle of being criminalized by that system. So you mentioned the dichotomy between perfect and non-perfect victims, violent and non-violent survivors. We don't make any distinctions. People who are defending their lives are considered violent offenders. So we're not going to be making the dichotomy between those who use violence and those who don't, because actually that's not helpful, and it actually also doesn't tell you much about what it is that people are facing and dealing with. Can you briefly tell us what does abolition mean to you and how specifically maybe you're organizing animated by a commitment to the abolitionist horizon? 
for me, abolition is a project of dismantling the systems of policing and government surveillance and incarceration, or at least working to make the conditions that allow for those institutions to exist and making those obsolete. And it's a project of building a different world, a world that does not rely on policing and imprisonment and government surveillance to address harm. It's also a real intervention in trying to end premature death. That's an abolitionist project. A lot of the ways that we think about things that are quote-unquote nonviolent are constructed by the state as such, but may be actually, in fact, violent. And a lot of things that we consider violent are actually not. But I would say we should confront the issues of violence. We should talk about the violence of the state and not let that be subsumed in the conversation. We have to talk about the fact that a lot of those people who are using violence were violated themselves, were survivors and sometimes just victims of violence in their lives. And we have to talk about how we're going to build structures that don't create more survivors and more victims on the outside before people even end up criminalized and incarcerated in the first place. I don't think you solve this issue by creating more violence, which is what locking people up does. More violence to supposedly end violence just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. For me, that's why I'm involved in projects that do use community-based accountability and transformative justice ideas and approaches to addressing harm. I think it's the only way that we're actually going to get up some purchase around these issues of violence in our communities and that we act proactively to address it ourselves. Because otherwise, we're going to leave it to the long arm of the state to address. And that's only going to bring, again, as I said, more violence into our lives. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks. Take care. Co-producer David Langsaf spoke with Adrienne Skye-Roberts from the California Coalition for Women Prisoners, an abolitionist organization comprised of members both inside and outside prison that challenges the institutional violence imposed on women, trans people, and communities of color by the carceral state. They explore the gendered and racialized dimensions of mass incarceration, the ways incarcerated women are organizing for survival and Torah liberation, and the creative forms of solidarity that have emerged between those inside and outside prison walls. My name is Adrienne Sky Roberts, and I'm a longtime volunteer of CCWP. Last month was my six-year anniversary. CCWP, the California Coalition for Women Prisoners, was started by people inside the women's prisons in Chowchilla in the mid-90s when the governor of California was Pete Wilson. And together, organizers inside prison and organizers outside of prison sued Pete Wilson and the state of California, rightfully claiming that the healthcare in prison was so bad, it was cruel and unusual punishment. And the organizers inside ended up winning that lawsuit. So it was like a really historic moment in the in the 90s and in the prisoner rights movement in California. And yet nothing changed inside. But what that moment did do was catalyze this organization to organize against conditions inside, against the prison system in general, for people's freedom and dignity from both inside prison and outside prison. Could you briefly describe California Coalition for Women Prisoners as an organization? Yeah, so we are a grassroots prison abolition organization. And like I said, our membership is on both sides of the walls. And we take our leadership from people who are organizing inside prison. And so we do a lot. We're like a two-person paid staff. 
out of our principles, we only hire and pay people who are formerly incarcerated or directly impacted by incarceration. And the rest of us are all volunteers. CCWP has about five prison visiting teams, and we visit the two California state prisons for women every six to eight weeks. We have a speakers bureau, which features formerly incarcerated people and prison survivors who speak at different events and universities and tell their stories. We're working on the Life Without Parole Storytelling Project, which is called A Living Chance. We're also doing support in the prison California Institution for Women east of Los Angeles, where there have been a number of suicides. And we have a newsletter that's been around for almost 20 years called The Fire Inside, and that features the writing of people in California's prisons for women, as well as legal information and some like art and poetry. I think that's more or less what we're doing right now. What does abolition mean to you, and how do you see CCWP's politics and organizing as animated by a commitment to and vision of abolition? And conversely, what perspectives and lessons do you think organizing as, with, and for incarcerated women has to offer the broader movement for abolition? So one of the things that I find to be really unique about CCWP's organizing that I think has everything to do with like an abolitionist politic. CCWP is very much a family. It's very familial feeling like there are very strong, very long lasting relationships amongst members in, inside and it's the kind and outside and it's the kind of organization where for myself it's like, well this is just life now. It's not just like the work or something detached from my everyday life. Like this is just life and this is my community of people. And to me, that's abolitionist because it's, well, one, it's speaking against a lot of patriarchal norms and it's getting outside of some capitalist structures and also like hetero patriarchal structures of of family and communities of care. And I think abolition is about like reorganizing power and reorganizing power structures. And within CCWP, the people who are at the center of our organization and the center of our movement are women and trans people of color who are often poor, who are incarcerated. And so that's a restructuring of power and it's a restructuring of whose voices are the loudest and whose leadership is honored, centering the people who these capitalist punitive structures are marginalizing. Can you speak to the ways intimate and gendered violence and trauma are weaponized by the carceral state and the various ways women are resisting, both inside and outside, whether through coalitions such as Survived and Punished or projects such as Life Without Parole and A Living Chance? I've never met anyone in a women's prison who is not a survivor of abuse, whether it's childhood abuse, childhood sexual abuse, intimate partner violence, human trafficking, etc, etc. It's absolutely the thing that connects everyone I've ever met who's done time. In California, if you were a survivor of intimate partner battering or domestic violence, any evidence of your abuse was not allowed in the courtroom prior to 1996. So if you were on trial for killing your abusive partner in an act of self-defense of you or you and your children, or if you were in an abusive relationship and you happened to be present 
or you were coerced into being present at the time when your abusive partner killed someone or harmed someone, that evidence of your abuse and your abusive relationship was deemed irrelevant. So there are many survivors sitting in prison who never actually had a chance to tell their full story. So that is one of the most obvious ways that the system relies on gender violence and relies on um, patriarchy and misogyny and it's racialized violence as well because these are majority women of color in order to incarcerate more and more people. There's so many ways that people are resisting from inside and have been resisting from inside since incarceration began. You know, some of the most obvious ways are through education, outreach, and awareness around cycles of abuse and around specifically intimate partner battering. Since so many people inside have had that direct experience, so many people do legal support for each other inside. There are a lot of what would be considered jailhouse lawyers, people who are self-educated around the law and they write writs for people, they support people prior to their board hearings, they're supporting people writing their commutation applications to Governor Brown. And then through CCWP, we're connecting with all the organizers inside and, and sort of bringing their work out. Staying with this line of thought, in what ways does CCWP's analysis, politics, and vision depart from the mainstream movement against domestic violence, particularly with regard to the latter's reliance upon increased policing, prosecution, and imprisonment as putative mechanisms of prevention and redress, a tendency that abolitionist queer feminists of color in particular have critiqued as a kind of carceral feminism? What I've heard over and over again from incarcerated survivors is that they're now in an abusive relationship with the state. So the same tactics and the same abusive patterns and abusive cycles that were present in their relationships, often with their co-defendants or their abusers, their parents, their husbands, whomever, on the outside, those same, very same tactics and cycles are being enacted upon them by the state, by the agents of the state, and they're in an endless cycle of manipulation and control. Can you speak about CCWP's multimedia project, A Living Chance? A Living Chance, the full name is A Living Chance Storytelling to End Life Without Parole. And CCWP has, we've always visited people sentenced to life without parole. So it's always been an issue that we've been aware of and engaged with and have relationships with people serving that sentence. Because it's considered such and is such an extreme sentence, it's almost never a part of any organizing platforms or political campaigns within the prison reform movement or prisoner rights movements. So people inside were like, it's really time that we start paying attention to this. And through our conversations, we figured, you know, who better to educate the public about life without parole than the people who are serving that sentence themselves. So we started a storytelling project that's been ongoing now for three years. And it started with people writing us and organizing inside to come up with questions that they wanted to ask about the sentence, about hope, about survival, about life before prison, what they want for their lives beyond prison. And then they would send us the stories outside and then we would arrange visits to go meet them in person if we didn't already know them and actually record their voices and record their stories and learn more about them. So thanks so much for coming on our show, Adrian. It's been really great to have you. Thank you, David. We now turn to two clips from the California Coalition for Women Prisoners Multimedia Project, A Living Chance, Storytelling to End Life Without Parole. 
MC and Kelly speak about their experiences as women sentenced to life without parole, state violence, and the ways women are resisting inside. It really concerns me. There's been so much abuse of power we've been watching on the TV with the killing of a lot of young black males. And of course that extends to brown people, transgender people, people in low income communities. The fact that the abuse of power is condoned, it's sanctioned, and there's no consequence for the abuse of power is scary for us because we already live in such an isolated world. Our walls are opaque. They're solid brick walls with razor wire on the top. Cameras and media are not allowed in. Even for me to have this attorney room visit today, it had to be approved way in advance. There is a recording device, but there could be no cameras brought in. And at any point, the recording device can be confiscated, they can listen to what was recorded. We have no sense of safety in here. And so when police officers, state-sanctioned violence is allowed to occur at the level of murder on the street, believe that we're gonna suffer those consequences behind these bars. But no one is gonna be able to record it. No one is gonna be able to talk about it. There's gonna be no proof that it happened. The proof and the evidence is gonna disappear. Well, the ways I organized in here to try to help myself and others is I'm a part of a committee called the Juvenile Offender Committee. And it's really focused on anyone 21 and under at the time of their crime because we know that coming in here at a young age, it's different to grow up in here. So we offer them workshops, we offer them tools, mentoring, anything like that to try to give advice so that they don't make the same mistakes that we did. Today we close off with a poem written and read by Carmen, a writer and artist currently incarcerated at the Women's Huron Valley Prison in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Suffocate beneath hypothetical honor, novel youth, staunch and vigor, downtrodden miscreants and misled gospel twine, laudable arsenic and frivolous race. With wall eyed optimism and aromic guises, credible vermin create fatted shits floating in a florid flush of narcotic vitality that hoards, stack, and suspend pulsating bassinets of maggot righteousness. Prejudiced and perverse, they exasperately glorify baseless white wash justice forged and fetid in wickedness, yawning, indolent, and slothful. They don't, don't, facing moral existence and stagnant comfort. They amass inept, impregnable admissions, balmy atrocities, inflicting intrinsic reproach and robust laceration. The oscillate sounds of impotence or havoc. Fickle, vagrant, spurt, trickle egotism, issuing forth from impetuous brow and muzzle. Muzzles, monotony malevolent, languid malefactors and carnal hoodwinks, egress and slack and impulsive, inauspicious conglomerations, disingenuous ass, uttering indigenous animosities, circling, lurching. They seesaw and they purge, yearn and despair, pine and fret, whose insides are peppery compartments spouting forth crotchety humorism, assimilating grotesque coalescence and immutable discord in impudent depositories that deteriorate and damage the undefended. Solicitors of substantial avidity, ravenous in elocution, covet pulpits, the wash and tempered absurdity, 
perpetuating flaccid ingenuity and paltry fortitude, emitting dissolution, they divulge disappeatable conciliation and eloquent delirium. With compulsory reprisals but besetting any trier of fact, hue malice the systemically feeding pretentious pendulums that swing admissive, sway and strangle, bruise and subdue, causeless in their incisions, immersed in abeyant grasses, same feeble, virginized gashes to persuade, confound, and antagonize indignation, they, the prosecution, fragment lives and prostrate freedom. Thanks for tuning in. Check out our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show is co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Team. Andres, A. Maria, David Langstaff, Cave Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.